Hi, I'm Paul Shepard, your Mindset Coach, and welcome to the Mindset Change Podcast, where you can be inspired and learn how to transform your mindset so you can create the life you truly want to live. I have with me Dr. Will Bolsovitz, also known as Dr. B, who will be answering all my questions about your gut health and mental health. This is absolutely fascinating. So let's dive right in. Now, this episode could be one of the most important episodes you ever hear for your mindset and physical health. I'm really not kidding. Exploring this information changed my life and my clients' lives too, and still continues to do so as the science evolves. So I'm very excited to introduce onto my show gastroenterologist and New York Times bestselling author of the mega hit, Fiber Fueled, Dr. Will Bosevitz. Thank you, Paul. I'm excited to be here. Excited to uh, dig into some gut health talk. Not as excited as I am. There's a lot I want to ask you, but I wanted to, as the show is called Mindset Change, I wanted to ask you what you think gut health has to do with our mindset. Well, I actually think it's a two-way street. I, I, I think it's. I think that there is an effect. Many people want to, uh, or they get very curious about the gut brain connection and how our gut health can affect, you know, whether it be um, cognition or mood. Um, but on the flip side, I, th- I think that mindset is extremely important in terms of your gut health, not only in terms of, you know, sort of your mood or where you're at in terms of your headspace, but also, you know, the, the thing about gut health that's really exciting is that. The science is very complicated, but the solutions are actually pretty simple. And if we can orient ourselves using the proper mindset and we start to just kind of take small steps in the right direction and not put too much pressure on ourselves, we can accomplish an amazing amount. No, absolutely. Absolutely. People listening to this show might not know much about the gut microbiome, and I've been diving into both of your books I got the fiber fueled one here, which is full of full of. I've never written in a book so much in my life, so underlining everything. Yeah. And your new book, which is the the actually the cookbook, which uh, my partner stole from me the other day and has ordered a sprout uh, sprouting kit from Amazon because read from just hey. reading this. So that's that's been you know I'm looking forward to that arriving. That'd be for us to play around with, um, but. Can you just explain a little bit to the people listening, what is the gut microbiome Yeah, and why is that important? Well, you know, we all, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. I grew up believing that, you know, here I am, I'm Will, you know, I look in the mirror, I see this man um, and you believe that you're this autonomous creature and that you live in isolation and, you know, you come into contact with other humans and things like this. But actually, the world that we live in is far more integrated, and we're not as alone as we believe that we are. Um, We now understand, and there's sort of an evolving new science that's occurring right now, Paul. You know, it's really, this is sort of the, um, one of the major breakthroughs of our time is that we're, we're now growing to understand that we're not isolated creatures. In fact, we are most appropriately called a super organism. Because joining with us are literally trillions of invisible microorganisms that they they may be invisible to the naked eye. You can't see them, 
but they're they're there. They're as alive as you and I are. They have their own sort of existence that's taking place as a part of our body. And, you know, what I'm referring to are mostly bacteria, but also things like fungi or yeasts. Um, these things called archaea, which we think literally have been on this planet for 4 billion years. The first life on Earth, we believe, really? were archaea. And, yeah, the, it was a, um, a, a dig, an archaeologic dig that they did in Greenland. And I, I'm not sure exactly how they discovered these the, the evidence of these microorganisms, but they did some sort of dating. I don't believe it was carbon dating. It was just, it was, I believe a different form of dating, but they, they were able to identify that these microorganisms were about 4 billion years old. And it's a fascinating thing to ponder because like literally earth did not have oxygen until 2.5 billion years ago. <laughs> And oh, wow. so they existed on Earth without like any oxygen. They, you know, they're they're that sort of hardy and resilient that you could find them on Earth that predates oxygen. You can find them in the bottom of the ocean in a rift vent. Uh, you could find them inside of a volcano. And then many of us have them living inside of our colon, inside of our large intestine. They're there. Wow. Um, and they're a part of this community. And, and some of us have parasites and, you know, parasites, by the way, it's a sort of a dirty word. We fear parasites yet. Actually, um, there's actually some research to suggest that parasites in some cases are actually really good for us and beneficial. So that's, anyway, that's such these scary micro words, aren't they? Parasites. And, yeah. These are such scary no, words for bacteria. some people like fungi. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. oh, and you're bringing forward sort of like they're, they're our friends? They're, they're, well, they're there with a purpose. Um, mm -hmm. So they're covering us, all external structures, our skin, our mouth, our nose, our, believe it or not, our eyeball has a microbiome, but they're most concentrated inside of our colon, which is our large intestine. And um, we, you know, we have had a relationship with them since literally the first day of humanity. So whatever that day is, you know, People speculate three million years, three and a half million years ago, whatever that day was where there was this human <laughs> who came to be, they had a microbiome and every single human, every single minute, every single second of humanity since the very beginning has involved the relationship between these microorganisms and us as humans. And so it, it would be most fair to say, Paul, that, that we co-evolved with these creatures. So we rose and we fell okay. together. Like we, if, if, if they supported us and we were more healthy and we had a survival benefit as a result of that, then they survived too. And that sort of co-evolution process basically brought us to where we are today, where we really rely on them for certain things in our body. So what is it that we're relying on them for? I mean, because we, we're hearing stories now that we've got to look after our gut microbiome, but for some people, they really don't know what that means. So it's in why. Yeah. So obviously it's a relationship, but what are they doing for us? Well, um, they, uh, through that evolutionary process, we actually allowed them to take up specific roles within our, our physiology as humans in a way that's so powerful that I would actually make the argument that it's impossible to be a healthy human without your gut microbiome. Hmm. And so the most um, 
uh, clearly representative way in which they're helping us is with digestion. There are foods like, for example, dietary fiber that we as humans are unable to process with our native digestive enzymes. And yet these microorganisms, they have the enzymes that we lack. In fact, not only do they have these enzymes, I'm making it sound like there's a couple dozen of them. Uh, Actually, estimates are that they have about 60,000 unique enzymes that they're able to contribute to our digestive process. So digestion, but then you can see that they are very relevant to our metabolism, our immune system, our hormones, our mood, our brain health, even our energy levels or the expression of our genetic code. And you run through this list and as a medical doctor, I sit there and I say, gosh, like this is pretty much everything that matters for human health. And this is not to say that, the, that they are the only thing that matters. That's not true. But they are a very relevant part of this equation that makes us human. And they're not even human, nor are they a part of our body. It's quite fascinating to consider. The gut has a huge impact on our mental health with 90% of serotonin created in the gut. How is it made and what's its role? The vast majority of the serotonin in our body is produced by our gut microbes. Mm. And um, it's quite fascinating to ponder serotonin for those who are not familiar is the happy hormone. So it affects our mood. Um, If you were treating a person for um, depression, major depression, I, as a medical doctor might prescribe what's called a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And Mm -hmm. this serotonin reuptake inhibitor will boost serotonin levels in the brain. And this is how you help people overcome their depression with medication. Um, But serotonin also affects our energy levels. It affects our ability to focus. And in the gut, serotonin is actually involved in establishing the rhythm of our body. So our digestive process obviously has a rhythm, uh, as evidenced by the fact that many of us will have a bowel movement around the same time every day. And the rhythm involves the motility or the movement of the intestines as they're sort of working things through. And serotonin turns out to be a really critical piece of this, almost like, you know, you're beating the drum. These microbes are beating the drum when they're releasing serotonin. And when the microbes are out of balance, you could actually change that rhythm or change that motility. And it could be too much, which would give you diarrhea. Or it could be inadequate, which would give you constipation. And both of these conditions can be associated with mood disturbance, which is what we see in people that have irritable bowel syndrome. Um, Now, Uh. what's interesting about the serotonin while we're on the topic real quick. Mm. Yeah. So You know, real quick on that, the irritable bowel syndrome, 20 years ago, when I was early in my medical training, you know, it was the observation among (laughs) medical doctors that irritable bowel syndrome, this is, these are conditions where people suffer with abdominal pain or discomfort, and they have some sort of change in their bowel habits that is a required part of, of making that diagnosis. So they could have diarrhea or constipation or both. And there was this observation 20 years ago, wow, many of the people who uh, have this condition, your old bowel syndrome, they're very anxious, they're very anxious, or they're more likely to have mood disorders. And, you know, unfortunately, I feel like the, at least where we were 20 years ago in terms of our understanding of mood disorders, it was almost like assigning blame to the patient. 
you know, these, these people, they're, they're so anxious. And yet, I think that the revised, more modern perspective on this is that at the root of irritable bowel syndrome is damage or injury to their gut microbiome. And because okay. of that damage or injury, it, it's um, a single source issue that can manifest with these digestive issues and simultaneously with the mood disorder. So anyway, the serotonin, um, it's important for people to understand that serotonin that's produced in the gut does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So the, the serotonin that's produced in your gut is not responsible for your mood. Um, that being said, there are many examples uh, by which the gut is able to actually influence and affect mood. And that includes with serotonin, pre, uh, serotonin precursors. So like 5-HT3 is an example of okay. something that is a serotonin precursor that is produced by the gut and can cross the blood-brain barrier and then ultimately affect mood in the brain. No, as I said, it's, I was wondering, one of my questions I was going to ask you was, a lot of people say that, you know, 90% of your serotonin is made in the gut, but it can't affect the brain because it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Then I read in your book about the precursors, and I was like, so, you know, what effect, it does serotonin at all have any effect on the brain, just to clarify that, through the vagus nerve, does it have any influence at all? Or is there a different process going on? Well, I think the key, the key here is um, not so much a question of does serotonin produced in the gut directly affect your brain and your mood. I think that the question is actually more of one, the curiosity, does your gut affect your mood? Okay. And the answer appears to be yes. And there's um, a number of different ways that your gut could potentially affect your mood. Uh, the gut, it's, you know, there's a, a bidirectional communication back and forth between your gut and your brain. They can't quit each other. They're just constantly talking. And uh, this is an all day, every day kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's multiple ways that the gut is attempting to communicate with your brain. And you mentioned the vagus nerve. So this is one. Um, and the, the serotonin precursor molecules would be another way that the gut could communicate with the brain. And then another would be through the production of short chain fatty acids, like butyrate, which actually have the ability to not only cross the blood-brain barrier, but actually to repair the blood-brain barrier. Oh, wow. And um, many people who have these types of health issues, they talk about having brain fog. And their doctor will roll their eyes and go, brain fog, come on. What are you, what are you even talking about? That doesn't even exist. Of course it exists. There's literally millions of people out there saying that they have this mm -hmm. symptom. How could it not exist? Just because we don't understand it fully doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so what is brain fog? Well, from my perspective, based upon my understanding, I believe that brain fog is actually where there's been injury to the blood-brain barrier that is conceptually very similar to the injury that takes place to the gut barrier when a person has leaky gut. Except okay. in this case, it's not leaky gut. It's actually leaky brain. And wow. that injury to the leaky, to that blood brain barrier gives them this brain fog feeling. 
And one of the ways that this can be repaired actually are the short chain fatty acids produced by our gut microbes when they actually come into contact with dietary fiber. And you know, a number of my clients have mentioned brain fog from having anxiety and trauma, but also from, you know, I know some people who've talked about it from COVID. And I know that you've recently mentioned on uh, a couple of episodes that I've been listening to uh, when I was doing some research that uh, the brain fog from COVID may be linked to a lack of dietary fiber. Is that correct? Or is it, what? what's your take on that? Well, um, I think you start with what, you know, uh, so I would not make the argument that dietary fiber or the absence of dietary fiber is responsible for, for example, the pandemic, you know, that, that mm. um, isn't the way that I would really frame it, but we have a pandemic. We have a virus that is spreading, you know, literally across the globe and it's like, and then it repeats and recycles itself in a new variant. And the question that has been coming up is because obviously the manifestations can be variable. Um, individual people have different responses to this virus. Mm. And there are those who have very little or no response. They barely know that they had it. And there are those who have a very violent, scary response. And for some, it puts them into the hospital. And obviously, more than just life-threatening, for some, it actually is fatal. And then there's also sort of the more prolonged manifestations of the virus that some people are experiencing where, you know, you get through the sort of acute phase and then you enter into more of a chronic phase that carries on for months. And so the, the question that we've had, Paul, from the very beginning was how do we uh, determine what's causing this? Mm. You know, how do, how do you, how do you predict the individual response? And anytime you hear, this is just, uh, you know, me sharing something that I've learned with the listeners. Anytime you hear individual response, it should almost be a knee jerk. Think about the microbiome. Okay. Because our microbiome is so unique and individual. Um, for example, Paul, you and I, believe it or not, even though we're clearly not the same person, uh, we don't look the same. We're not related to one another. There's many ways in which, yeah, um, we we still share 99.99% of the same human genetic code. Wow. Okay. But in terms of our gut microbiome, statistically speaking, we probably, at least according to the available evidence, only share 20% of the same microbes or less. Wow. So okay. we're, we can be very widely different in terms of the signature that is completely personal to us within our gut microbiome. And if you uh, think about this planet that we inhabit with 8 billion people on it, it's quite fascinating to ponder that we scientifically are of the belief that there are no two people that have the same microbiome. That's how individual we are. Okay. So with COVID, um, individualized response, how do we explain this? Well, mm. there was a study that came out in January of 2021, published in the journal Gut, uh, which is the top European gastroenterology journal. 
And in it, they found that there were discrete differences in the microbiome of those who had a more severe response to COVID. And those differences, there was a pattern and the pattern intensified in parallel with the intensification of the symptoms. Those who had the most symptoms had the most like sort of clear pattern and those with mild symptoms, it was not quite as striking or obvious. And the pattern that existed, Paul, was the absence of the microbes that produce short-chain fatty acids. People were missing those, missing those microbes. Wow. And it's quite fascinating when I saw this. How do you get to miss those? Yeah. Well, uh, most likely the body's response to the virus is what is motivating this. Okay. Um, and that could be the virus itself, or it could be our own inflammation, or it could be both. But those are the most likely ways in which this change or pattern starts to take place. And when I saw this, I I thought it was quite fascinating because I had previously seen data in animals, not in humans, where they actually would infect the animal, it was a mouse, infect the mouse with a respiratory virus. And they fed the mice you know, either a high fiber diet or a low fiber diet. And they found that the mice that were being fed the high fiber diet were actually surviving better and had less symptoms from this respiratory virus. And so the scientists, this is, by the way, this study that I'm referring to right now predates COVID. Um, the, the, the scientists who were looking at this, they, they were surprised because they thought, oh, well, fiber is anti-inflammatory and you need inflammation to clear the virus. So wouldn't they be at risk for worse results? Oh, and the answer was okay. the opposite. So they, they did a deeper dive. And what they found when they did this deeper dive is that the high fiber diet was Here's the sort of sequence of events. Fiber comes into contact with microbes inside the mouse's intestines. Those microbes digest the fiber and they release these short chain fatty acids like butyrate. And the butyrate actually enters into the bloodstream and is able to manipulate the immune system. And what they discovered is that the immune system became. Um, more targeted towards clearing this virus. So in other words, what that means is that the exact cells that you want to clear the virus were actually being put on the battlefield. And the cells that you don't want and would be like excessive and unnecessary, they were kept in the barracks. And so this precise response allowed you to clear the virus without going too far and making yourself sick. So anyway, this sort of set the stage where you say, okay, interesting. So the people who have severe COVID are having less of these microbes that produce short chain fatty acids, which is what this animal model study is saying is the key. 
is starting to click a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then it was last summer, Paul, where a study was published, uh, basically showing us that it, it was among medical doctors um, who were exposed to the virus in their work early in the pandemic before we had a vaccine from five different countries. And what they found is that the doctors who were consuming a plant-based diet actually were the least likely to have severe COVID. Wow. Okay. Wow. And those who um, consumed a mostly plant-based diet were the second least likely. And so it's the sequence of evidence that involves from an animal model to a microbiome study to a dietary study that really gives you the confidence to say there's probably something to that. And so uh, as you, the original question, it took me a couple of minutes to sort of unpack, but the original question was, Good. You know, some people are getting this brain fog mm. and um, why, why is that? And what it appears is that the manifestation of symptoms that you receive is distinct and personal and probably at least in part motivated by your microbiome, but that you can reduce your risk perhaps by consuming a plant, a more plant-based diet. And when I say plant-based, by the way, I don't mean Hmm. necessarily a vegan diet. I just mean an orientation towards more plants, more fiber. And so, uh, of course, there's going to be anecdotes. There's going to be people who go, but I ate a perfect diet and I got sick. And again, it, this is not a perfect thing or a silver bullet. This is These are just ways to reduce risk. Yeah, yeah. I think um, so. I, I, people listening to this might be thinking, so if I just rush out and change over to a plant-based diet, then I'm going to be okay? You, would that be the, is that the magic bullet? I don't believe it's the magic bullet. I do believe that there's value to changing to a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. And again, by plant-based, I, it's, I mean it in a very inclusive way, um, not okay. an exclusively plant-based diet necessarily, but meaning that you are eating predominantly plants. And it, so I don't want to go so far as to make false promises and tell you that this is a magic bullet. But what I do know is this, that we are in a place now where we have data that suggests that you reduce your risk related to COVID, that you reduce your risk related to influenza and pneumonia, and also by increasing dietary fiber, you reduce the likelihood of you having a heart attack or dying of heart disease or being diagnosed with several types of cancer or dying of cancer or having a stroke or being diagnosed with diabetes or being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And you know, the bottom line is that we actually are at a point where we have compelling evidence to suggest that by simply increasing your dietary fiber, you could reduce your exposure or your risk with seven of the top 10 causes of death in our countries. Mm. And that doesn't even include COVID. And so there are a lot of good reasons to increase your dietary fiber. And in both of our countries, the average person is deficient in fiber as we speak. The vast majority of people are very deficient. And what do you think creates the resistance to eating more plants, to moving towards that type of diet? I live in Brighton, where I think we're voted in Britain like the most vegan-friendly city. 
We have so many vegan restaurants here. We're, we're very lucky. We have so much in the way of options, uh, but yet there's still resistance yeah. to moving into you know to moving in that direction. What do you think is partly the cause of that? I think that it's a multifactorial multifactorial thing. I think there's a lot of elements that um, feed into this. So, you know, part of it is the modern lifestyle. The world has changed. This is not the world from a hundred years ago. We didn't have televisions and cars and cell phones and you know uh computers this is things have changed a lot and the pace has increased and when the pace increases people myself included i'm i lived most of my life this way um you look for shortcuts you look for convenience mm. and these foods particularly ultra processed foods they're inexpensive they're quick they're easy and they taste good. So the only way that you can stop yourself from going there is to acknowledge that they're not good for your health. And yeah. that's more of a delayed return thing. And so I think that that's part of the challenge that we have is that you don't like necessarily instantaneously feel that. Um, although I would say they, they, when you eat an unhealthy meal, usually about 90 minutes after the meal, you do feel it. But nonetheless, yeah, true. Um, you know, there's 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 uh, accessibility issues. There's affordability questions that do exist. I I do think they're overstated in many cases because, frankly, a plant based diet is not a salad diet. A plant based diet is built on a backbone of inexpensive foods like legumes and whole grains. Mm. Um, I many people look. We weren't raised on this diet, and we don't know necessarily how to cook or insert this diet into our life. That's one of the factors is people say, well, what am I going to eat? And that's a, that's a legitimate question for them. And they just, they don't really know what to do. Um, so, you know, and I, I could keep going. I don't want to go on for 20 minutes on that, on, on that one topic, but there clearly are barriers. And I think that the challenge that exists is that those barriers are very individualized. Like what, what is the barrier for you as a person? Um, I could tell you what the barriers were for me when I was, you know, earlier in my life and like I, I, I had no interest in this diet. And um, so we all have to, I think, take a look at we have to make the decision first that we want to start to change. I think it's very important that we not put too much pressure on ourselves. This is the mindset thing. Yeah. I feel that setting attainable goals is critical in order to accomplish. Like we, we want to feel a sense of accomplishment. No one wants to feel like a failure. And when you set unrealistic goals, if you don't achieve them, then you feel like a failure and then you move on to something else. So I'm of the belief that like setting very attainable, simple, common sense goals that anyone can do, we have to start there. And then we just, you know, to me, it's about take that first step. Yeah. yeah. And that's momentum. And then you can carry the momentum forward. Yeah. I, 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 you might not know my story, but I had a, an anxiety disorder. I had IBS really badly. And I, the biggest thing that I struggled with was I sought out traditional help and therapy. And my doctor, uh, you know, was it was just they prescribed antidepressants, uh, which I was too frightened to take. No one mentioned in the traditional fields to look at my lifestyle, which was terrible. 
my food was, it was junk. It literally was awful. And it was the strangest thing was it got to a tipping point where I was going to either carry on the way I was with panic attacks on a regular basis and IBS and social anxiety, or I was going to make a big change. And I had a big, strong moment of, I have to move away from focusing on my mind to focusing on my body. So I moved towards eating better and learning how to breathe properly. There's a whole variety of things working holistically. But what was interesting was my anxiety began to die away. And that was a shock for me because I thought I was only going to get better originally if I addressed what traditional therapy or antidepressants were going to focus on. Um, I didn't know I was going to get better from looking after myself in a different way, like not drinking caffeine all day and sleeping better. I didn't know much about, there's no information about the gut microbiome back then. But listen, in reading your book and, and the research I've been doing for a, a, a while now has given me an idea of what actually might have began to change in that time. Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing. I love hearing that. Um, I have no doubt that, that you know, those changes are the reason why you were able to elevate your health and you know, rise the tide on your mood and also I'm sure other other elements of your body that improved from a health perspective. Um, I, you know, my story is not very different. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was in my early 30s and I was uh, existing in my medical training, very rigorous medical training. I was existing on a junk food, fast food diet. And I you know, found myself 20 kilos overweight and I had, I was metabolically out of, out of balance, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, but also my, my mood was just horrible. I mean, it's just not in a good place mm-hmm. and extremely anxious, no, no actual panic attacks, but a lot of anxiety and, um, I was very depressed and I literally was in a place where I just wanted to curl up under a blanket in a dark room and be left alone. That's kind of where I was at and hard to describe, but I kind of felt like the world, this is, I think, bizarre to people who haven't experienced this, but for people who have, they can relate. It felt like the world was in shades of blue or gray to me. And um, so I, much like you needed a way to fix this. And I didn't actually believe in the things that I was taught in my own medical training, even though my medical training was at great American hospitals, uh, because they were the pills and the procedures that you're referring to. So actually, I tried to exercise my way out of it. And it didn't work. And when I changed my diet, which, by the way, was not an overnight thing. It was a gradual thing. It was making small choices and repeating them. And then adding another yep. small choice and repeating it. And but when I did that, it was actually quite amazing how much my life, my health, it, it came back to me. And I started feeling like myself again. And it, it was so almost effortless once I got my body properly aligned and moving in the right direction. And at least from my perspective, that's really what has inspired me to do all the things that I now do, because I I believe that if as a medical doctor, you or any healthcare practitioner, um, if you care about your patients, 
then once you discover something that you know for a fact can be life-changing, how could you possibly sit in a room and look a person in the eye that you care about and not give that to them? And that's what really changed for me. So I became inspired to do work that included diet and lifestyle as a part of everything that I was doing. Um, in addition, in addition to my conventional sort of medical training. Now, I I listened to an interview where you were talking about this a little bit. And as a holistic practitioner, the, the four key areas that I focus on is mind, body, heart, and purpose. I believe if you look after all of those, then you're going to be in a much better place than you would be if you just focused on the mind or if you just over-focused on the body. And you mentioned that you um, you're aware that trauma has an impact on the gut microbiome and that you, you introduced that into your work as well, to some degree. And I wanted to, you know, and that made me think, wow, that's, it's so nice to hear of someone in a medical field, having that awareness because it's holistic, isn't it? You're looking at the bigger picture. And I, I, I really do think that's missing. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, how did you get to that point where you understood how trauma was affecting the gut that way. I think it was a little bit of serendipity. Um, this is a massively important topic. And I honestly believe that the, the, the greatest moments of healing in my work as a doctor have been the result of this. Because there's a lot of people out there who will tell you that you need to change your diet. <laughs> and it's a pretty common sense thing. But there's not as many people who have made this connection between the physical manifestation of disease and what may be present in your mind, mm. whether it's your conscious or your non-conscious mind. And these connections really started with in my work. So my gastroenterology fellowship, my my the four years that I spent training to be a specialist was at the University of North Carolina, which in my field in the US is commonly accepted as, you know, if not the number one program, it's widely accepted as one of the top three. And my, I had a mentor that I worked with, his name was Doug Drossman. And Doug Drossman, actually, if you, if Paul, if you, if you look at the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, and where this came from, you will find this name, Doug Drossman, because oh, wow, he okay. wrote the book. Um, it's called The Rome Criteria. And <laughs> it's, I believe it's either in its fourth or its fifth edition. Okay. And he is the author of every single edition. <laughs> so anyway, I was working with him and he had a quite fascinating clinic because in the U.S., a GI doctor will take at the most 15 minutes per patient. And he would take two hours. He'd book two patients wow. for the entire okay. afternoon. Yeah. And we would go in and we would talk to the patient. Then we'd step out and we would decompress for 15 minutes, talk about what we thought was going on. Then we'd go back in and we'd talk again to the patient. Then we'd come back out and we'd talk for 15 minutes about what we thought was going on. And But the amazing and powerful thing was that you... Um, because of that investment of energy and time and attention, you could open up topics that normally don't get opened up. 
and you could adequately bond, even if it's just for one afternoon, you could adequately bond with a patient to the point that they'll actually tell you things that they may not have felt comfortable talking about when they first walked in the door. And what we found and what he has described in his research throughout his career is that the people, particularly with digestive disorders, the people who are suffering the most are the um, ones who there's some sort of trauma that is negatively affecting them. And when I use the word trauma, I want to make sure that it's clear that most of us, when I say this, we immediately jump to very, very intense, widely accepted things like True. abuse. Yeah. But um, trauma comes in many forms. And it is not defined by you or, or I, it is defined by the individual person. If there is something that has negatively impacted you and it remains unsettled and it continues to disturb or trouble you, even if it's not in your conscious mind, this was something that was traumatizing. And so, and then it's quite um, interesting to consider what we now understand about human physiology and how this all works. Because when we're exposed to stress, you know, pretend that you have to walk on stage, you're, you're scared of public speaking and there's 5,000 people waiting for you to talk. <laughs> yeah. That stress will often manifest in our gut. And it may start off as like a little knot or nausea. Um, and then it may grow into something bigger like a big discomfort or a cramp um, or turn into diarrhea, constipation. Well, um, there's actually a physiologic explanation for what's happening there. When we experience fear or stress, the brain will actually activate the pituitary gland and release a hormone called corticotropin releasing hormone or CRH. And this CRH is actually intended to be our normal stress response and activates certain pathways in our body. And in certain scenarios, this is good for us. We need this. But there is a consequence. And if you follow it downstream, what you discover is that the CRH, the consequence is that it actually causes injury to your gut. And this um, is the reason why acute stress, we will manifest it in our, in our digestive system. Because... That acute stress is actually perturbing our gut microbiome, like in that acute setting. But people who have trauma, whether it is recognized or unrecognized, the problem is that either way, it's an unhealed injury. And that injury uh, emits constant stress. And so this pathway that I'm talking about this is not an acute, you know, one hour thing. This is an ongoing 24 hours a day, seven a week, seven days a week thing. And so in that person, they are constantly suppressing their gut. And that's why they could do everything right. They could, you know, they could eat the right food and sleep and exercise and meditate and they do all these things. But if you have this Thing that has negatively affected you from a traumatic perspective and it is um, not being adequately addressed, then 
you ultimately will discover that it's going to be nearly impossible for you to heal your gut until you actually turn towards that and address it. Mm. And then once you do, it's actually the the healing. No, I I can I I can relate. Is off the charts. Yeah, I can relate to that. Sorry, because once once yeah. my uh, anxiety got better, as I started to feel less panicky i was more i was able to focus on my mindset and the trauma that i'd had in my history in a much better way but it but it was really weird i some people go the other way around they have their trauma dealt with first and then they work on healing the gut but for me it seemed to work better the other way around when i was less anxious in the gut because everything went straight to my stomach everything i would get that instant Mm -hmm. nausea the instant knot um, but when I learned to breathe with it, relax it, um, and I started eating better and sleeping better, um, I was able to work on my mind in, in a much more, um, you know, uh, effective way. And that's what, mm. you know, so everything was working in a, in a cycle. I just had to try and interrupt it somewhere. And, and then it, it worked out quite nicely. And that's the sort of thing I promote uh, with uh, the holistic mindset and anxiety coaching, it's it can't just be from one area. It, we have to look at the bigger picture. Well, if if one thing is affecting the other thing, if these things are intertwined and they are inseparable, then you um, can address one part of it, but yet continue to have a problem because the other part of it is ongoing. Absolutely. And so this is where I like to think of it as like rising the tide on your health, where. When you address all of these things, it's like quite remarkable what healing is possible. Well, that's what I've seen with clients. They're shocked. They're like, and they know this stuff. A lot of them will say to me, okay, so I kind of knew that I should be eating better and I'm feeling better now that I am. So we kind of know this stuff, but there's sometimes a resistance or I think we sometimes listen to our past conditioning that keeps us held in a maybe more of a negative place. But it's it's that it's nice to see people beginning to look after themselves as a whole, and that's how they begin to improve. And and you mentioned the tiny steps with your diet. You know, I'm a big fan of BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits book. Um, I talk about it quite a lot, and it's a very effective way of creating powerful changes. You don't have to go jumping straight into a huge fiber-based, plant-based diet. Uh, which I think I'm going to ask you about that in a minute because I, I made the mistake of doing that at one point. Um, but those tiny little steps can make a big difference just to make it easier, more natural for your brain to adapt. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the other thing is that this is not a sprint. Mm. This is a marathon. And so you are far better off making those small, like almost trivial changes, but actually that they're sustainable. You're far better off doing that than whipping your body in different directions as you like desperately try to find a quick fix. Absolutely. So the mistake I made was I've gone uh, vegan and vegetarian before and my stomach just went, no, that's not happening. Um, from the, your literature and other, other pieces I've, I've discovered, I made a cracking mistake. Can you explain what was probably happening by me just jumping into a high fiber, high, you know, dots of chickpeas and legumes and, you know, bits and pieces. Uh, it didn't work out so well with me bloating, gassing, uh, or that sort of things. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what, that's what often happens. That's what often happens when people, um, uh, quickly, quickly modify their diet and they're outpacing their 
body's ability to adapt to what they're doing. So you have to understand that these gut microbes that we've been talking about, first of all, your diet has a massive impact on those gut microbes. So the dietary choices that you've made over the last, let's call it three months, roughly, are reflected in your gut microbes. If you tell me what a person eats, I can tell them what I can tell you what their gut microbiome looks like. If you show me their gut microbiome, I can tell you what you've been eating over the last couple of months. All right. All right. So you are adapted to whatever it is that you are eating. And if you change your diet, what's exciting is that your gut microbes will actually start to shift within 24 hours. You already see changes taking place within 24 hours after a dietary change. But um, your gut microbes, they deserve an opportunity to adjust to what you are doing. And the bigger the shift is, the less likely they will be capable of actually keeping up with the change that you have asked them to make. So it's just a little bit too much, too hard, too fast. And then you suffer because you say, oh, I can't tolerate this diet. This diet is not for me. And then you back out or you, you move in a different direction. The issue was never that the diet is not for you. The issue was the implementation was too quick. And that in order to properly implement our diet, I always say start low and go slow. And, you know, essentially what that means is that much like going to the gym, your gut is like a muscle. It can be trained. It can be fortified and made stronger. It's capable of doing things you didn't think you were capable of doing. But in order to get there, you have to be systematic in your process. You would never go to the gym on the first day and lift the heaviest weight in the gym. (laughs) You would go and you would start with what you're actually capable of doing. And then you would come back two or three days later and do it again, but slightly more, just a little bit. And that's the way it should be with our gut is start with what you're actually capable of handling and then slowly increase over time. And again, it's not about getting to the end point as quickly as possible. Instead, it's about having a process that gets you to the end point. And it doesn't matter when that happens. It just matters that it's going to happen. Yeah, that's what I like about your literature. It really does talk about training your gut. Yeah, your gut, your gut you know, I, I think it's quite important for us to think about the gut in the same way that we think about exercise, because this takes away the sort of, hey, I'm not really sure what happened there, but I didn't feel well. If you can just understand this process and use the exercise analogy and apply it to your gut, then it really starts to, in an accurate way, frame these different things that we can experience. You know, again, like no, no human being in their right mind would wake up and just roll out of bed and run a marathon. You would hurt yourself. But what you do is you start with a training program that perhaps starts with a half of a mile run. And then you go half a mile and a mile and two miles and you start or kilometers, whatever we want to do. But either way, you're, you're ramping up as you move towards running this distance. That's a very, you know, it's, it's a long distance. It's not easy, Absolutely. but people are capable of doing it. You just need the proper program to get there. Training your gut is essential. That's very clear. Thank you. What mental health issues are affected by damage to the gut? Well, so first of all, this affects you in a multifactorial way. When there's damage to the gut and you're not feeling well, you're less likely to exercise. Yeah. That affects your mood. When you, there's damage to the gut, it can give you insomnia or negatively affect your sleep habits. That affects your mood. 
um, you know, I'm of the belief, I'd be curious to hear if you, uh, what do you think of this, Paul, but I'm of the belief that one of the best things you can do when you're not feeling well in terms of your mood is just get a really good night's rest. 100%. And I don't want to call it a silver bullet, but I do think it's important. But it's something that people fight against. Well, I think we're the only species on the planet that messes around with our sleep patterns. And I've only recently discovered that our gut microbiome has a circadian rhythm. Yeah, it does. Uh, our gut microbiome clearly has a circadian rhythm. That's because it's made up of 38 trillion living microorganisms. And just like we have a circadian rhythm, so do they. And this is where the idea of, you know, avoiding late night snacking, avoiding late night alcohol, trying to have an early dinner. To me, early dinner, people always ask, what do you mean by early dinner? Well, in a perfect world before 7 p.m., but like something in that area. Um, and, you know, giving your body a rest or a break. And people refer to this as intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating. But to me, it's just quite simply allowing your gut to rest. And there, I think, I believe that there are some benefits at a minimum in terms of our metabolism, but also in terms of the way that our, our, our microbiome will function. Um, now, you know, going back to um, our mood. So the, the, there's clearly challenges that exist there if you're not able to exercise or to sleep because these are factors that affect your mood too and, and so do the food. Um, and so how do, we ultimately, um, how do we ultimately work towards uh, getting ourselves to a better place? It really comes back to what we have been talking about during this hour, setting realistic, realistic goals, realistic expectations. You don't need to go and run. You can walk. Mm -hmm. True. And it's actually quite shocking how powerful a 30-minute walk can be. 100%. Right? So, um, to me, when a person is, you, know, you and I, we've been there, when a person is feeling like they're in a hole and they're trying to figure out how they're going to dig out of this hole, these small changes that are beneficial to your body, not being too radical, are a great place to start because you start building this momentum and then you feel better. And when you feel better, it reinforces the choice and you come back and you do it again. And then you start to level up over time. Now, I, I, I totally agree with you. Do you think there's a the rise of anxiety? We're seeing a rise of anxiety and depression with more pills being pumped out to these people and instead of addressing the root causes. Do you think that's a big, uh, you know, a big part of that to play is the change in our Western diet, especially, you know, it, it seems to be getting worse for some people for, for whatever reason, you know, the economy is changing. We have an inflation issue here in the UK. I'm not sure what's happening in the States, but do you think this is all part and parcel of what's... We have a huge inflation okay. issue. Uh, do you think that's all part and parcel of increasing, yeah. well, you know, the gut microbiome issue with, with health? The, you know, so first of all, the gut microbiome, there's so many different ways that we have discovered that your lifestyle ultimately impacts your gut microbiome. It's not just a food thing. It's so much more than that. And so, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about, disrupted sleep, lack of exercise, um, your dietary choices, stress. Do you feel connected to the people in your life, right? Um, do you have something that's traumatizing you? Every single one of these factors ultimately comes back and can affect your gut. 
there's there's many ways that our life has changed. But what we do know is that, for example, social media makes us feel isolated and alone. It's not the same as you and I sitting down and being at a table together and having a conversation and looking one another in the eye. It's not the same. Um, and the access to, to information that we have makes us perceive threats constantly. And it's not a coincidence that our news agencies, and I know this is not just an American thing. I, I'm quite for sure that this is happening in the UK, yes. that our news agencies, they are emotionally manipulating us because when they tap into our emotion in a way that makes us feel some sort of threat or some sort of, oh, what's going on here? We click. I need to know more. Click. What's going on? Click. And you actually then expose yourself to something that can be anxiety provoking in and of itself. They provide low hope, don't they? It's that misery. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't see a lot of stories that are uplifting these days. <laughs> right. And I, and I do see a lot that frankly, neither I, nor you, nor the listener at home really have control over. Right. It's, if it's completely out of your control, but it disturbs you. You know, it's hard to get into this without sounding political in some sort of way. But I'm quite sure, knowing where we're coming from, that the majority of our of us in February, when things were happening in the Ukraine, it's very disturbing. Remains very disturbing. And that's stress. That I'm not saying we just ignore it and pretend it's not happening. But the access to information that we have in 2022 is very different than 100 years ago where we would have been lucky to like even get a telegram Absolutely. to tell us yeah, yeah. that something's going on yeah. or we would read it in the newspaper that we get once a week, right? Now it's 24 hours. So it's just a very, it's a heightened level of intensity. Yeah, it's 24 hours. Right, now it's Twitter, yeah. like within, within two minutes. So, um, and you know, and then there's these other elements where technology and the interaction with, so do I think it's our food? Absolutely, but I think there's these other elements, you know, like, Think about this. 20 years ago, we were using flip phones. <laughs> there was no such thing as the like computer in your hand type, type of phone and smartphones. And now we're addicted to these things and we're on them all day long. And it's 1030 at night and you're refreshing your Instagram. And this bright light is reflecting off the back of your retina. And it's actually suppressing your melatonin release. Yeah. And melatonin is a sleep hormone. And we need it for good, not only high quality sleep, it affects our gut. Right? This is the type of stuff. It's like, look at how much our life has changed. And I'm not saying that I'm going to give up my car and go and live in the woods. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, though, is that I think we have to have a heightened level of consciousness to the way that our life is and be willing to make the adaptations that are necessary in our own life. So for me, for me, it means trying to limit technology late at night. And it means sometimes there's big things happening in the world and I take a break. And I know there's big things happening in the world and my friends may be talking about it and I still take a break mm -hmm. and I stop paying attention for a little bit. No, I do exactly the same. I, I have to because it's, it's what I promote on the podcast. It's we can't be constantly triggered into a flight or fight response without it having some impact on our mindsets and our body. And I, again, it's the one thing we have control over, which everyone seems to be fighting for, is our attention. 
you know, where are we going to put it? Whether it's on, you know, social media or on the news or somewhere else, you know, entertainment consumption, all of these things do have an impact if it's done without breaks or actually questioning how long do I really need to be doing this for? So I really like what you were saying there. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of other questions that I think a couple of uh, listeners would be really interested in. I was talking to uh, someone at the gym and I mentioned that you were coming on the show and they said they were a big fan. And they said, um, can you ask uh, Dr. B about um, the menopause? Because we have, a, I don't know if you know much about we in the UK, but we have an HRT crisis. And I know nothing about the menopause. So they said, what advice would you have to give to someone who's struggling at the moment to, they're worried about getting their HRT, but is there anything that can be done with the, our, you know, our dietary to help someone who's worried about the menopause? Yeah. Well, um, we, so there's new research. I'm involved with a company that many, most people in the UK know uh, named Zoe. Okay. So, and Zoe ran the COVID symptom study that had 4 million people across the UK who participated um, and were um, led on the science side by Professor Tim Spector from King's College. And so I'm actually the US medical director for Zoe. I've been okay. working with Zoe since 2020. I use the app. And have been on their scientific advisory board. The app? Yeah, I use the app. Every, it says, it gets sent yeah. me a message every yeah, day. So what's I, your I, status? <laughs> Oh, really? Okay, yeah. cool. Perfect. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, using actually that app, using that app and using some of the other studies that we're doing, because we're a very academically oriented company. So, which is what I love about it. And you know, this is how you see people from King's and Harvard and Stanford, like we've all come together um, as a part of this initiative, this, this mission. But we actually um, have just touched the surface of studying menopause. And we're just getting started. Okay. Um, but we have become very interested because we have a lot of users that are women between the ages of 45 and 60. And it's, Paul, so it's quite shocking how little research is done on this topic. Really? Recognizing that half of the world are women and the other half are people that love women. Like we want happy <laughs> What's women. What's going on? We want healthy women. And... <laughs> It's yeah. What's going on? Why are yeah. we not studying this? And this is it gets back to this is beyond menopause. This gets back to disparities in health research um, and, you know, inadequate effort to orient towards women health related issues, perhaps perhaps going back to an older tradition of mostly men dominating health, the health field. So thankfully, that is starting to shift and change and we're having more equal gender representation. But um, nonetheless, uh, what we have found specifically with menopause is that dietary choices do make a difference. And when people eat a cleaner, higher quality diet, which to me, a clean diet really means an orientation towards more plants, we, we do discover that they experience less of these menopause type symptoms. And so we're, we're going to do more. We have more that's going to be coming down the pipe, but this was just the very beginning. You can search um, my colleagues, uh, Professor Sarah Berry, she's from King's also, and um, she's one of our scientific leaders at Zoe, and she has been out talking about this and our new research findings. So for people who are interested, you can look more into that. Excellent. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And another question, because someone else asked me, ADHD, 
seems to be rising. I know TikTok's been blamed for it, um, you know, from misdiagnosing, etc. Um, but is, is is our diet responsible for you know the lack of attention? And we could have, we could put it down to phones and screens and things. But is our diet to be to blame for this too? I think that there's multiple factors that are in play when it comes to this issue. I don't think that it's just exclusively a dietary thing. Um, but I do think that ultimately this does involve the gut microbiome to some degree. And when it comes to diet, they have looked in children and they've actually, I've cited these studies in, in, um, in my books where they actually put children on a high fiber diet and noticed that it improved their ability to focus. So, you know, we're raising kids on sugar. And speaking as a dad for a moment, I have three kids. One of them is a newborn, but the other two, you know, eight and five years old, I can literally see the, the difference acutely wow. in their attention span when I give them, you know, sugar, give them candy. So, you know, from my perspective, um, I think that there's multiple potential factors, but I think diet is a part of the story. Wow. Okay. So, Dr. B, one question that I've, I've been pondering about a gut microbiome is we have seasonal diets, which, you know, due to um, obviously the seasons. Um, but I wanted to ask you, do we have a seasonal gut microbiota? That well, does, does that change throughout the year? It's interesting. Um, so there is evidence that it does change and evolve with the seasons. Uh, the study that was done was looking at a tribe of modern day hunters and gatherers that exist in Tanzania. They're called the Hudza. And they basically tracked their microbiome as it evolved throughout the year, recognizing like the Hudza, again, they're hunters and gatherers. So there's no agriculture. They are not going to the supermarket. So like they're foraging and they're hunting. And um, what they discovered is that when certain things came into season, their gut microbiome actually became more capable of processing and digesting those foods. Now, you know, some people will ask, well, does that mean that the gut was like prepared to process and digest those foods because they were starting to grow that season? Meaning like, you know, whether you eat the food or not, would your gut microbiome cycle in this way? And mm. the answer from my perspective is I don't believe that's the case. I think that what's happening is that our gut, again, adapts to whatever the choices are that we make. So when something becomes available, whether it's in season or it's just something that we start to eat and we haven't been eating, your gut will adapt to that and it will become more capable of processing it, which is quite interesting. Yeah. I, I always wondered because, again, it's... I, I was looking at some people's moods begin to change and we, we class it down to, you know, changes in sunlight and vitamin D maybe. But again, it's, I was wondering if the gut microbiota got worse during the winter or better, you know, does our, because we change our diets quite a lot when it gets towards sort of festive periods, et cetera. So that's what, that's what the, the thinking was behind. Well, that. it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So like seasonal affective disorder, right? Yeah. Seasonal affective disorder. And is there a connection to our gut health? And my expectation would be the answer is yes. Wow. That's my expectation. I haven't seen a study to explicitly uh, evaluate this. But that being said, how could we explain this? Well, you know, bearing in mind that when you exercise, 
it improves your gut. When you spend time outdoors, it improves your gut. Exposure to sunlight improves your gut. Exposure to other microbes like non-sterile environments. Because bearing in mind that everything that's alive has microbes on it. Not just us. The trees, the leaves, the flowers. Um, So when the weather is nice, we exercise and we are outdoors and, you know, we're coming into contact with these microbes and we're getting sunlight and we're happy because we're more socially connected. You know, so there's a lot of potential reasons to explain why seasonal affective disorder could be there. No, no, that's that's absolutely fascinating. I've always wondered what changes in our body as we begin to move into different seasons. So another thing that people are going to desperate going to want me to ask is, is it, you talked about probiotics a lot on your in other interviews. So I kind of know the answer to this, but I just wanted to hear what you had to say in people often think, you know, jumping onto the probiotic bandwagon, that's going to solve my issue. If I, cause there are certain strains which are going, if you take this strain, like lactobacillus rhamnosus, that will solve my anxiety issue or it will help in some, in some, to some degree. So it even be called psychobiotics. Um, what are your thoughts on, on those bacteria strains and that are being touted as anxiety cures or helpful? Uh, is a probiotic the answer? Um, it can be part of the answer, okay. but we shouldn't, we shouldn't fall for the marketing hype that would lead us to believe that it is the sole answer and it is a silver bullet. Okay. I, don't, I don't believe that that is the case. I think that when it comes to, you know, for example, uh, addressing a mood disorder or um, healing your gut, you can't just take a supplement and expect that it's going to fix all your problems. It's not that easy. And the challenge with probiotics is that you have a, you know, we, we mentioned this earlier, you have a very unique microbiome. There's no one on the planet with a microbiome like you. So it's not like the same thing for you to take that probiotic as it would be for me to take that probiotic. Okay. We're both individual. Our response will be individual and the effect will be individual. So we will have to see, and that, that's where to me it becomes a trial and error thing. Is there a rule for probiotics or for supplements? Yes, but it should not be the first thing that we reach for. Okay. Diet and lifestyle should come first. We should do what we can with that. And then when it comes to evaluating these probiotics, if you take it and it gives you the benefit that you are looking for, that's a win. If you take it and you don't notice any benefit to it, why are you taking it? That's the way that we need to evaluate these things. That's great advice. Your Instagram, the Gut Health MD, is absolute gold. And your website has a lot of helpful information on it. But where can people find you? I'll put the details in the show notes. Well, my... You know, I think there's multiple points of entry depending on the individual person and what you're looking for. So I personally, I think you can tell this, Paul, I like a more nuanced conversation. That's what I prefer. And I can have a more nuanced conversation in my books. So I have two, Fiber Fueled and the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. Um, You know, that to me is where the sort of like, I put a year of my life into each one of those books. So... I feel like there's just such tremendous value and you don't even have to buy it. If you get it from your library, that makes me happy too, honestly. Your your humor comes through these books. That's what makes, when I I read these books, you're so entertaining in the way that you deliver the information. I guess, you know, get a real sense of your character, but yeah, it's so informative. I 
want, I wanted to write a book that I would enjoy reading myself. Good. And I don't enjoy reading medical textbooks. (laughs) (laughs) So I needed some sort of way to make it entertaining and lighthearted, even though we were going to get a little sciencey and nerdy. And so, so yeah, so my, there are my two books, but then also um, I have my website. My website is theplantfedgut.com. And on that website, you'll find a ton of free resources. So like there's free resources related to Zoe or to like, if you have one of my books, there's free resources for the books. Um, But then also there's my email newsletter where, you know, there's a breaking news study coming out to really talk about it. I can't really talk about it on social media. Oh, wow. Okay. So I prefer to send a good high quality email breaking things down. No, I, I get your so, email. Anyway, so, so the email newsletter is to me the, yeah, thank you. That's, um, that to me is where the money is at. And then, and then you can find me on social media at the gut health MD on both Instagram and Facebook. And I have a brand new TikTok account with like six followers really? and that is the gut health MD underscore. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I just started it a week ago and uh, the gut health MD underscore because apparently someone took the gut health MD. I don't know if they're trying to hold me hostage yeah, for how, money, but it's not going to work. Um, I have a big TikTok following, so I'll, I'll have, I'm going to put some stuff up, but it'd be good to to share your info on there as well. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Honestly, I, this information I, I, I keep saying it; it's absolute gold. I think it's a I think it's the future of helping people holistically look at the mind and body in a completely different way. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. I appreciate you inviting me. And I think, you know, everyone who uh, listens today, thanks for hanging out with us and um, hope you have a good one. Thank you. I hope from this episode, you've realized that your gut health is an essential part of helping heal your body and mind. It's all interlinked. I hope you find this episode useful. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to connect with you in the next episode. Have an amazing day.